0: Let's read Lamentations chapter two. How the Lord in His anger has set the daughter of Zion under a cloud. He has cast down from heaven to earth the splendor of Israel. He has not remembered His footstool in the day of His anger. The Lord has swallowed up without mercy all the inhabitants, all the habitations of Jacob. In His wrath He has broken down the strongholds of the daughter of Judah. He has brought down to the ground in dishonor the kingdom and its rulers. He has cut down in fierce anger all the might of Israel. He has withdrawn from them his right hand in the face of the enemy. He has burned like a flaming fire in Jacob, consuming all around. He has bent his bow like an enemy, with his right hand set like a foe. And he has killed all who were delightful in our eyes in the tent of the daughter of Zion. He has poured out his fury like fire. The Lord has become like an enemy. He has swallowed up Israel, he has swallowed up all its palaces, he has laid in ruins its strongholds, and he has multiplied in the daughter of Judah mourning and lamentation. He has laid waste his booth like a garden, laid in ruins his meeting place. The Lord has made Zion forget festival and Sabbath, and in his fierce indignation has spurned king and priest. The Lord has scorned his altar, disowned his sanctuary. He has delivered into the hand of the enemy the walls of her palaces. They raised a clamor in the house of the Lord as on the day of festival. The Lord determined to lay in ruins the wall of the daughter of Zion. He stretched out the measuring line. He did not restrain his hand from destroying. He caused rampart and wall to lament. They languished together. Her gates have sunk into the ground. He has ruined and broken her bars. Her king and princes are among the nations. The law is no more, and her prophets find no vision from the Lord. The elders of the daughter of Zion sit on the ground in silence. They have thrown dust on their heads and put on sackcloth. The young women of Jerusalem have bowed their heads to the ground. My eyes are spent with weeping. My stomach churned. My bile is poured out to the ground because of the destruction of the daughter of my people, because infants and babies faint in the streets of the city. They cry to their mothers, where is bread and wine? As they faint like a wounded man in the streets of the city, as their life is poured out on their mother's bosom. What can I say for you? To what compare you, O daughter of Jerusalem? What can I liken to you that I may comfort you, O virgin daughter of Zion? For your ruin is vast as the sea. Who can heal you? Your prophets have seen for you false and deceptive visions. They have not exposed your iniquity to restore your fortunes, but have seen for you oracles that are false and misleading. All who pass along the way clap their hands at you. They hiss and wag their heads at the daughter of Jerusalem. Is this the city that was called the perfection of beauty, the joy of all the earth? All your enemies rail against you. They hiss, they gnash their teeth, they cry, We have swallowed her, ha, This is the day we longed for. Now we have it. We see it. The Lord has done what he purposed. He has carried out his word, which he commanded long ago. He has thrown down without pity. He has made the enemy rejoice over you and exalted the might of your foes. Their heart cried to the Lord, O wall of the daughter of Zion, let tears stream down like a torrent day and night. Give yourself no rest. Your eyes no respite, arise, cry out in the night, at the beginning of the night watches. Pour out your heart like water before the presence of the Lord. Lift your hands to him for the lives of your children, who faint for hunger at the head of every street. Look, O Lord, and see, with whom have you dealt thus? Should women eat the fruit of their womb, the children of their tender care? Should priest and prophet be killed in the sanctuary of the Lord? In the dust of the streets lie the young and the old. My young women and my young men have fallen by the sword. You have killed them in the day of your anger, slaughtering without pity. You summoned, as if to a festival day, my terrors on every side. And on the day of the anger of the Lord, no one escaped or survived. Those whom I held and raised, my enemy destroyed. Read that far in in God's word. What have I done? Reading and now the task to present this passage to you in a Christian church which is dedicated to preaching the good news which is the gospel of Jesus Christ. How is there good news in this passage and what does it all mean? The second chapter of Lamentations has the same structure chapter one had. That is that each successive line begins with the next letter of the Hebrew alphabet. So in the original it looked alphabetical to you. Two reasons for this. One is it emphasizes the words of the center, verse 11. If you were here last week, you remember that we looked at verse 11 of chapter 1 as central. Same thing here. So you can go ahead and glance down at verse 11 if you can do two things at once and see what the center is. It's underlined and highlighted, as it were, by the alphabetical nature of the structure of chapter 2 in Hebrew. The second thing that this structure shows us is the comprehensive nature of the coverage of the topic what we're supposed to get is the impression that everything we need to know about suffering and grief is presented to us in this artistic and complete way. Like we would say, from A to Z on suffering. What a gift that is, to have from God, A to Z on suffering. So it's an artful and a thoughtful reflection about suffering. It's causes, it's meaning, it's limits, it's reversal, it's perspective. While the book of Job is similar, it speaks to us about suffering, Job is about personal suffering, personal disasters. It's different here in the book of Lamentations because it's about communal disasters. It's about the community or national disasters, such as extreme food shortages that everybody feels, or wars, or mass murder. How are we to think about God As a nation, as a community, while we travel together through a mass catastrophe that impacts us all. That's the value of the book of Lamentations. One clue is that while Job's suffering was undeserved, the suffering of Jerusalem was deserved. So there's a key significant difference there. It brings us to our main point. When we suffer, we are to return to its source, the suffering's source. Asking him for comfort and aid. So, laments point us back to God for hope during the deepest agonies of grieving. Even when we know that God has sent us the suffering, still God is the source of comfort. He calls himself the God of all comfort in 2 Corinthians 1. He's the source of mercy, he's the source of comfort even while he's the source of the suffering, as we will see pounded home to us as we go through these verses. So we'll go through uh, three categories, three points. The Lord became like an enemy, verses 1 to 10. Verses 11 to 17, our second point, the Lord intended our suffering. And verses 18 to 22, the Lord teaches us to cry out to him. So first, verses 1 through 10, the Lord became like an enemy. That's quite a statement. The Lord is our savior, he's our God, he's our redeemer, he's our friend. Our hymn books and our Bibles are filled with good notions about God. And here I'm saying kind of quickly before you are, you catching it, that God's like an enemy. I'd, I'd better make the case, right? I'd better prove it from this passage. Remember back in chapter 1, uh, Jerusalem was compared to a widow. Widow now without husband, without children. a Widow now taken from the role of a princess to that of a slave. That was the comparison in chapter 1. But here in chapter 2, the city of Jerusalem is now compared differently. There's a different metaphor Jerusalem is compared to a star, a literal star in the sky, because the city had splendor, like the nation of Israel. It's God's city, God's country, God's people. What happened to the star? Verse 1, we read, God has cast down from heaven to earth the splendor of Israel. Jerusalem was a falling star. That's the comparison here now before us. It was a city and a nation that used to enjoy a privileged position with God through its covenant relationship with him, but the people did not retain the understanding of their part, their moral obligations, such as the relationship to God required of them. And The whole book of Jeremiah told us that story. Everyone failed, prophet, priest, king, every citizen of Jerusalem failed God. Verse 2, the language of God's judgment therefore intensified. What was the Lord doing in verse 2? Let me summarize for you. He's swallowing up without mercy. He's breaking down the strongholds in his wrath. He's bringing down to ground in dishonor kingdom and its rulers. The act- activity of God here at least has us alarmed already, doesn't it? We're only in verse 2. Verse 3, we continue to see a ratcheting up of the surprising activity of our covenant God. Instead of coming to the defense of his people, as we might expect him to do, as he's sworn and committed himself to do in his covenant— Instead of coming to the defense of his people, God is the one cutting down the strength or might of Israel, in verse 3, and he has completely withdrawn his help. Significantly, we read this stark, shocking comment in verse 3 that God has withdrawn from them his right hand in the face of the enemy. How often has we read through the Old Testament the hand of God and the hand of God, the action of God is demonstrated by his power in his hand. And now we read in verse 3 that he has withdrawn from them, his right hand. And instead, what we read in verse 3, it was God who burned like a flaming fire, consuming all around. Fire, as you well know, across the Old Testament, is frequently a symbol of God's judgment. It's the same here. God's fire is against Jacob. He's a burning, flaming, consuming fire all around. We're only three verses in, and I think that you might be joining me in having a sense of shock of what our God is doing. It's almost as if the covenant God is behaving the opposite of what he had said in his covenant that he would do. It's as if he's hitting the wrong target really hard. If we didn't know better, we'd think that God is behaving like an enemy against his people. Verse 4, sure enough, that's how the poet now expresses the unfolding situation. Verse 4 reads, He has bent his bow like an enemy. His right hand is set like a foe. He has poured out his fury like fire. Our quotes from verse 4, the hand that had symbolized God's help through the past is now the same hand that's turned against Judah. Judah. We we have to stop being frozen in shock by this point. Snap out of it and face the fact that God truly is acting like an enemy. The poet is putting it to us strongly. Verse 5 puts the statement right out there. In so many words. A propositional statement. Look with me at verse 5. The Lord has become like an enemy. There it is. I've proven the case. The rest of verse 5 has God swallowing up Israel, laying in ruins its stronghold, multiplying their mourning and lamentation. Verse 6 continues the picture with God as their enemy, where God has laid waste, laid in ruins, and in fierce anger has spurned both king and priest. In verse 7, God has scorned his altar, disowned his own sanctuary, has delivered his house and the palaces of his kings and nobles over into the hand of an enemy army, and to show how out of character this still is of the God that we thought we knew, this is the only other time there's this much activity is during a holy festival. But this time, there's so much activity, but it's a hostile takeover in the city and in his temple. Verse 8, it was not Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, who alone determined to destroy the city of Jerusalem, but rather it was God. The poet will not let us wiggle out of this truth. He's pushing it at us hard and leaving it in front of our eyes. Again and again, reiterating listen for who ordered the hit. In verse 8, the Lord determined to lay in ruins the wall of the daughter of, of Zion. He stretched out the measuring line. He did not restrain his hand from destroying. He caused rampart and wall to lament. Again, personifying rampart and wall that they are even lamenting. Poetry the true source, is vitally important for us to understand properly the archetypal event of the fall of Jerusalem. We've got to get it through our thick heads that it was God taking action against the sin of his people. That's what the fall of Jerusalem is all about. Verse 10, God describes how the people of the city reacted to these actions from God. They grieved You know perhaps that the signs of ancient grief are very different from the signs of modern grief. And in their culture, they would A, sit on the ground in silence, B, sprinkle dust on their own heads, and C, wear sackcloth, which is basically itchy clothes. And they did all of these things in verse 10. How could they do otherwise? That's our first point. The Lord became like an enemy. Verses 11 to 17 is our second point. The Lord intended our suffering. Verse 11, the center of the poem, you remember, A to Z, underlining, underscoring verse 11 as the center of the poem, so emphasizing this verse, shows us the poet described his personal anguish at the unparalleled suffering of his own city. Especially the focus is the poet's reaction to the suffering and dying of small children. We might agree. We resonate, do we not? Whenever through our lives, whenever we read through history or through the Bible, We resonate because there's something deep within us that's protective of children. Because we all grieve that innocent children are so often the victims of the sins of adults. Our poet is right there with us, so overcome with grief. He cannot stop weeping, verse 11. His stomach is upset, and let me put it this way. He has lost personal continence. That's clear in our central underlined verse. Verse 12, the poet heard the children crying to their mothers. It's plural. Multiple children, multiple times he heard. The pattern is that children are crying to their mothers asking for food. And all that each mother had was a dry bosom. Each child was momentarily comforted just to lay there upon their mothers to fall asleep briefly, which became a euphemism. The children's lives were being lost right in the one feeding position that's supposed to represent worldwide safety and provision. And instead, it takes on in our poem this horrific inverse picture representing emptiness and, yes, even death. It's a poetic nightmare. Verse 13, the poet desired to reach out with a word of comfort or an embrace of healing. He didn't have any. He couldn't provide healing there's no comfort he could offer and he expresses what our savior expressed in matthew 23:37 o oh, jerusalem jerusalem the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it how often would i have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings but you were not willing Matthew twenty three thirty seven. That's the grief. That's where the poem leads us. The final statement in verse 13 is, your ruin is vast as the sea. Who can heal you? There are times when nothing can be done by us to alleviate the pain of others as much as we would desire to do so because that person will not turn back to God for comfort and healing. We've all been there. That's what the poem's expressing in vivid imagery. Verse 14, part of the blame of the tragedy of the fall of Jerusalem is on the failure of the prophets. They were supposed to speak the word of God and prevent all of this. They became false prophets instead. Specifically, we read in verse 14 that the prophets did not help the people because the prophets have not exposed your iniquity to restore your fortunes. That's how it's supposed to work. The people go astray, The prophets tell the truth of how they are going astray and they return to the Lord. But the persons did not return and the prophets did not speak the truth and showing the people their own sins didn't happen. The words of the prophets instead were, at the end of verse 14, false and deceptive. It's important to note that false prophets are an urgent and oft-repeated problem all across the New Testament. It's not simply an Old Testament problem for old bad cities like Jerusalem. It's a humanity problem. We all go astray in a thousand ways all the time and we need a constant source of God telling us what's right and wrong and the call to repent and come back to Him. For example, the problems described by God in Second Peter 2, 17-19 that the false prophets are waterless springs. And mists driven by a storm. For false prophets, the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. For speaking loud boasts of folly, false prophets entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. False prophets promise the people freedom, but false prophets themselves are slaves of corruption for whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. Second Peter 2, 17-19. The job of the prophets was to expose the sins of the people and to warn them of the consequences, but the false prophets in Jerusalem failed to do so, and the poet wants you to look long and hard at the results. Verse 15 shows the stark and ugly result of the absence of faithful prophets. Anyone who passed by the ruins of the city of Jerusalem would mock and laugh at their suffering, misery, downfall, and destruction. And in verse 16, the enemies railed against the city. They took credit for the city's downfall, but it was really the Lord who intended it. The point was driven home once more in verse 17 where we read, The Lord has done what he purposed, He has carried out his word, which he commanded long ago. He has thrown down without pity. He has made the enemy rejoice over you, and he has exalted the might of your foes. The Lord intended suffering because the Lord must punish sin. It was deserved. If only there were mercy from this same God who's faithful to announce his restoration from his prophets. It brings us to our third point. The Lord teaches us to cry out to him, verses 18 to 22. Verse 18 begins the third section of our chapter. Now the poet's calling upon the city. Yet even now, call out to God in the middle of your suffering. The poet now personifies the wall. Called upon the wall to cry streams of tears without resting and to weep for the ruined city Verse 19, cry out in the nightmare, cry out in the nighttime in order to pray for the lives of the children who are faint and dying of hunger. Going back to the very start of the world, before God started the work of creating, we're told that there was chaos. Genesis 1 verse 2, the earth was without form and void. What happens when God is absent? The same thing we find repeated here in the city of Jerusalem, the chaos that's unspeakable written out for us so that we will take a hard look at it. Listen carefully. Verse 20. Should women eat the fruit of their womb and the children their tender care? Should priest and prophet be killed in the sanctuary of the Lord? In the dust of the streets lie the young and the old. My young women and my young men have fallen by the sword. You have killed them in the day of your anger, slaughtering them without pity. God's judgment is to withdraw himself and let us do whatever we will to each other. The result was that priests and prophets fled to the temple based on the mistaken belief that God would protect them in that hallowed place. But God sent a sword that was indiscriminate, taking both old and young, men and women. Again, it's emphasized here that it was God who killed them, God who slaughtered without mercy, and he even let his sanctuary be dismantled. Verse 22, one last time, we're reminded yet again that it was God who instigated this in a similar manner to the manner of calling for a gathering for a religious festival, filling the city and filling the temple area with people for a festival, holy to worship God, now he calls together people in order to render his judgment upon them. Just as many people, but they're Babylonians and they're filling everywhere, including the holy of holies. That's what we see in this last verse. God would surround them with what we call here in verse 22, terrors on every side. You can't look anywhere without it being a terrible sight. John picks up this image in the last book of the Bible, Revelation 19, starting with verse 17. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come, Gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of the kings and the flesh of captains, the flesh of the mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. Revelation nineteen seventeen to 18. Maybe John was reading Lamentations. In the final nine words of Lamentations, chapter 2, Jerusalem suddenly reverts back again to the widow personified back from chapter 1. And so the city speaks about her own citizens now the way a mother would speak about her own offspring. Quote, Those whom I held and raised, my enemy destroyed. The end. The end of chapter 2. The end of this particular poem within a book of poems. What are we to learn from this as modern New Testament Christians? I have three applications. Number one, take a good look at that from which Jesus saved us. If these images roll around in your mind, have them laced with thanksgiving that Jesus saved us from this. To understand this, we fast forward to the Jerusalem destruction, not of Jeremiah's day, but the Jerusalem destruction of Jesus' day. What happened in Jerusalem later that pictured the wrath of God still starker? God the Father became the enemy of God the Son who bore our sins. And the result was the destruction of Jesus himself. And when we consider this with the question about whether God the Father acted as the enemy of God the Son, ask how it looked from the cross, and you have your answer. Matthew 27, 46, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? is exactly the perspective from the cross that tells you the Father had become the enemy of the Son. It's a direct quote of Psalm 22.1. Jesus was lamenting, but God the Father was not hearing him. Why? So that whenever you lament, God the Father will hear you. You will never have the experience that God the Father is turned away from you, forsaking you. You have an open heaven to you to bring your pain, your lament, your sorrow. Jesus was rejected, that we will never be rejected. So please remember, as we consider this chapter, take a good look at that from which Jesus saved us. Number two, lament the correct thing. Lament Adam's sin plus your own. Lament the correct thing. Lament Adam's sin plus your own. When Jesus was heading to the cross to be destroyed, it was sad, right? Listen to what we get in Luke 23, verses 26 to 31. As they led Jesus astray, they seized one Simon of Cyrene who was coming in from the country and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. And there followed Jesus a great multitude of the people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for Jesus. But turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren, and the wombs that never bore, and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, Cover us. For if they do these things, When the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? Luke 23, 26 to 31. What is Jesus saying to the women lamenting his own destruction? Why would he say to them, don't weep for me? Don't lament for me. He's saying lament and weep for yourselves. Why should they weep for themselves? He says it's because he's green wood. He's innocent, and yet when he bore the sins of others on him, the father turned away as his enemy, and he was about to be destroyed. But for those who are dry wood, those whose guilt is their own, in addition to Adam's, those have no resistance to the flames. It lights up faster and easier. Rather than lament the destruction of Jesus, they should return to lamenting the destruction of Jerusalem. What's our visceral reaction to what we've read in this chapter about the destruction of Jerusalem? Is there not similarity to our visceral reaction to Jesus with the nails on his hands and his feet? The beating, the crown, the piercings? We're saddened and maybe honestly even grossed out and surprised at the justice that God required that this treatment be for Jesus as our sin bearer. And Jesus is teaching the same thing Jeremiah was teaching in the book of Lamentations. The justice of God is not the place to lament. God's justice and wrath fall on Jesus and that's not the place to lament. Seeing God's justice and wrath fall on Jerusalem well-deserved is not the place to lament. We... Lament sin, its existence, that anyone would turn away from this glorious, wonderful God filled with justice and mercy. We lament the community pain that we all have contributed to, the human community that's brought on the human race since Adam's sin plus our own. We lament the lack of repentance in ourselves and the lack of repentance in our fellow man in the human community in pain. Lament the right thing. Lament Adam's sin plus our own. A third and last application is to appreciate afresh the sufficiency of Christ's salvation accomplished for us at Jerusalem. To appreciate afresh the sufficiency of Christ's salvation accomplished at Jerusalem. He stepped down from heaven in humiliation becoming a man the second Adam, the last Adam. He left the place where the angels of heaven constantly praised him round the clock. Entered the quietness of the womb. Upon full gestation, nine months later was born, became a boy, then a man, and from religious leaders in Jerusalem, as he a rabbi, was treated disrespectfully. He was challenged, questioned, followed, suspected, accused, put on trial illegitimately, indicted, sentenced, beaten, put to death, and buried, and this at Jerusalem. But consider what this accomplished. Nothing else is ever needed. Nothing else is ever needed for your salvation. Consider what this accomplished. The cross and the empty tomb are sufficient. You read in Lamentations 2 about the wrath of God and it gives you fresh appreciation for the sufficiency of Christ's cross work to redeem us. I end with this. Jesus has come. He's provided once for all sacrifice. Listen for the once for all. Hebrews 9, and following. Under the law, almost everything is purified with blood and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf, nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own, for then he would have to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Hebrews 9, 22 to 25. Appreciate the sufficiency of Christ's salvation accomplished for us at Jerusalem. Let's pray. Father, grant us clear thinking about suffering